welcome to Integrated, the Community Paramedicine Podcast. And today I have with me John Mikula, who is living the dream down in Florida these days as I enjoy my 10 degrees outside uh, afternoon here in Pennsylvania. And John has had an interesting and varied career, done a bunch of different stuff, but he's been involved in community paramedicine now for a little while. And I'll let him introduce himself and kind of tell you what he's up to. Thanks for coming on, John. Thank you for having me, John. I'm glad to be here. So why don't you tell me, I know we just talked about it a couple minutes ago, about what you're doing now as far as community paramedicine and how you got there. You know, because that's that's always a roundabout journey for kind of everybody today. You know, there's no clear path into it, but how did you get there? So I am the manager of community paramedicine for TransCare, which is part of the uh, crisis center at Tampa Bay here in Tampa, Florida. So I kind of got here as, you know, I, for a long, good while, I was a paramedic for a uh, Polk County, you know, was started as EMS, now fire rescue, um, and really got an interest in community paramedicine then and saw whether I thought was a need, and along with one of the training officers there to have some type of community paramedicine or to look at these, the high utilizers of the, then the 911 system, um, and tried to work with them to have a program there. Uh, didn't work out as well as we wanted it to. Then still had that moved on to doing other things when I left the fire department and flight medicine, but still really wanted to go back and be part of a community paramedicine program. So for uh, you know, about a little over a year, year and a half ago, I came here to TransCare and became part of their community paramedicine program here. Good stuff. So how long has the program at TransCare been up and running? So they start, it's uh, just about, we're just about three years old. The first year was the, you know, put together year, grab every, you know, kind of the research and putting it together and getting it all together and two years of actively having patients in our program. And you said they started with uh, some initial grant funding and have they moved on from that grant funding to uh, some other financial model? So you said we had the grants, we're moving on from the grant. So we're also now working to to hopefully have contracts with one of the, our major partner in this uh, local hospital here, uh, as we've been helping with their high utilizers. And that's, that's our game, you know, part of our game plan for payer system is, is to have a continued contract with them as the grant comes to an end. Sure. That sounds like a, a very logical transition for somebody kind of embedded where your program is today. So what are you focusing on? Like what, what is the criteria for enrollment or what makes somebody eligible for uh, your team or your program to reach out to? So we, uh, right now it's mainly, we are, one of our biggest things is dealing with the high utilizers with uh, our partner hospitals. Um, so they look at their patients that have been, how many number, the number of admissions that they've had, obviously looking at how dealing with the issues with readmissions and how that plays on to them with Medicare and the insurances uh, with all the different changes that have come in the last few years with that. So once a patient has been admitted a certain number of times, they usually look at two or three, but also they look at if they feel that this patient has you know, lack of access to services or just needs that that extra help just to kind of make sure they're not going to become a high utilizer. Uh, we'll get a referral from that facility explaining to us why they think they would make a good candidate for the program. And then we'll review uh, with the team, hey, this is a better referral from our hospital. We, you know, they think they'll be a good one. And then they'll be assigned to a paramedic at that point in time, uh, one of the community paramedics to then take them on as their patient. 
So is that the only referral source? You folks working with any others, uh, partnering with local EMS, you know, high utilizers in the field or primary care or anything, or is it really just focused on that one uh, high utilizer group? So right now it's, it is, we get a lot of them from there. We will get some from our, uh, our transport side of, of TransCare is the uh, BLS backup for Tampa Fire. And uh, we, if a patient is identified through that service, then they will, we have referral from our own EMTs in the field to us um, that way. We've also had referrals, uh, the, the other points of it. We have the uh, 211, which is the resource line um, that is here. It's also the mental health line in this area that is based out of the crisis center at Tampa Bay that if a patient calls there and they, get, they have some identity things met where there might possible issues, they'll also refer them over to us. And, you know, makes sense. And, you know, obviously it opens up a whole bunch of different opportunities for, you know, not only collaboration with the patients themselves, but possibly to additional funding sources or sustainability, which I guess is the, the goal for all of us, right? Building sustainable programs that are able to fund themselves outside of the grants. Yeah. Trying to find that long-term funding to keep your, keep your program going and, and make sure you're still here six months, year, two years, three years from now. Absolutely. So, you know, that brings up kind of the next question, the next point, and that's really the, the data question. How are you folks documenting? Where are you documenting? How visible is that information to the other stakeholders in the system? You know, it's certainly been a large challenge for everyone out there is uh, being able to meet the data needs of not only our patients, but supporting and justifying the program. So all of our data, Florida has the access to care group, which is merely the, the group that's uh, at the state level that's really become part of the, where the MICHP and community paramedicine, all that is kind of resided, where they look at what their, their quality of life thing is one of those big things. What are our scores pre and post? And then also looking at that 90 days and then trying to see our, our total numbers, you know, our reductions in their number of ER visits and then the observations, which are the less than three days down here. And then their overall reductions. All of our data we try to make available to the uh, hospital systems that we work with so they can see as we're charting on our patients, as we're getting that information and putting it into it. We keep a spreadsheet on it. Florida's also started to keep a uh, generalized, they have this quarterly uh, survey that comes out for people to add information to it. So they're trying to now start tracking those things statewide. Those are some of the bigger things that we're trying, the reductions uh, that I've seen in the in there. We're also trying to keep track of obviously demographic information, what what's the barriers to care, what particular comorbidities are we hitting the most and, and dealing with the most through getting with our program also. Yeah, definitely that uh, data interoperability question is one of the, the big challenges for most of us. And if you don't live within a large health system, then what do you do? The group you were describing, is that functionally more like an HIE, like the health information exchange? Or you know, what role does it serve in terms of bridging, say, clinical data or your, your narrative and your progress notes over to, say, the PCPs within, uh, within your region or the hospital case management and social work staff and all those other people who really need to touch the individual patient information, like what happened yesterday and what, what narratives in there? So, um, you know, the, that narrative stuff, obviously that's all there. We keep our data here, which is also seen by our hospital. I think the, the state group there is, which is at the state meetings and obviously they, where they're looking at the expansion of where, uh, you know, community paramedicine and how, what roles it should play. And that there's also talk, uh, uh, in fact, I was on a webinar the other day, health departments, uh, you know, medical director for emergency medicine over, you know, over EMS, where they're trying to make a uh, 
have an office for MIH in at the state level within inside the, the Department of Health. Uh, Dr. Shepke, who's at a uh, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, is in charge of that. And that group is, that access to care group is, is more of a state level. So trying to make sure everybody's on board on the scene, you know, making sure across the state that we're getting the same data points and, and, and making sure we're collecting the information. So they're trying to get it, I think, from a larger, like, a, you know, the 10,000 foot view. And then we, you know, we're also keeping it at the, the local view also to make sure we're able to pass it on to our facilities and our partners to make sure we're showing, again, that data that what our program's doing, what it's accomplishing, how it's helping along the way. No, helpful. And I think, you know, helpful lessons learned for a lot of folks that are trying to figure out how to do this and navigate some of those partnerships. Uh, are you folks partnering directly in terms of care rendered with any other external partners? You know, right now for us, it's, it's just our hospital partners that we're, our direct relationships are with, and then hoping to work on other partnerships as we, as we move along and love to see we will work we could do with the VA and what other uh, type of programs we can kind of expand on and help out with wherever, as we had to do with COVID pivot and flexibility to make sure our program can work uh, in, in not more than just one way. Sure. So to kind of shift gears a little bit here, you know, being able to work with lots of different partners, being able to lot, meet, you know, several different needs and demands from external stakeholders, internal stakeholders, all of that's important. But how are you, how are you preparing community paramedics? You know, somebody comes on board, you know, hired into the program or recruited into the program. What are you doing or what is the program set up to provide them in terms of training and education so that they're ready to go do that job? So we try to make sure that, uh, you know, getting patients a better understanding. We try, One of our things is we'll get them with our partner hospital to sit uh, with your case management, uh, kind of see what they do at that level with, you know, with the RN case manager and with the social worker uh, over there. Um, and to give them a better understanding of what's coming through at the hospital side that we may may not deal with on a regular basis in pre-hospital medicine, um, trying to make sure whatever continuing education classes and everything, and then also there with the other community paramedic when they start another community paramedic visiting patients to kind of see where the, we're not just, we're not there for the acute need where we normally are used to as a paramedic. We need to kind of look at the bigger picture of what the patients, what's going on with the patients. Um, so we'll start that. And then one of the other things is we, we have a uh, member of who are our, the, the kind of subcommittee, we call them the task force, that's over community paramedicine, that is a uh, educator at, at the University of Tampa here that we're hoping to really start and get some further education for all of our uh, paramedics to make sure they're not just, again, looking at that acute need, looking at that larger, that longer term goals that aren't normal for paramedics and that bigger picture type stuff. Yeah, it definitely sounds like... There, there's some vision there. Are you aware of any programs or, or training programs that are out there that you think would be beneficial to helping new CPs get started? I know that yeah, I've heard of other locations, other Seminole, I want to say there's actually in Seminole, there is a program that uh, is uh, started that, you know, has worked that way when you do, you know, some of the education stuff I've seen from around the country that other places are started doing that. I think the big thing is, is for, for new CPs and is to really uh, try to look beyond just the normal, I've been only going to take ACLS or PHTLS or those type of things to try to see what other type of further uh, education things that are out there that may give you, again, that bigger picture look. I think that's one of the things that CP so far is, is 
to say there's this particular education program that kind of helps diversify what the paramedic's doing and to give them that, that education and that knowledge beyond just that acute need that we're so used to doing. No, that's a good plan is, you know, keeping an eye out for what's out there. I agree with you. I don't think there is a, a consistent educational standard, but I think we're moving towards it. There's, there are some excellent programs that exist, but they're all really developed to meet their local need. And again, agreeing on what that national standard looks like is a work in progress for all of us. Most definitely. Yeah. So I understand you folks are, you folks are recruiting now you're hiring now and just one position, one full-time CP. Yep. Currently right now we're looking to, you know, expand our, uh, our program to a fourth uh, paramedic. So looking for uh, one more uh, full-time community paramedic as our program expands and we continue to get busier. Um, We found it was time to expand uh, our program by another paramedic here. Awesome. So tell me, what's the ideal candidate? Um, ideal Who's candidate, your fantasy candidate that's going to apply? Um, you know, for me, it's it's somebody who has have a paramedic that has, you know, yes, they've got their basis in EMS, but maybe they have some hospital background. And, you know, do they, you know, it's kind of um, that varied healthcare where they've kind of been able to touch more than just EMS, that, to my opinion. Um, but somebody who's got some years of experience that is willing to learn, um, that understands that, you know, some days we're not going to just, you know, have that five minutes with the patient. Sometimes you're going to sit there 20, 30 minutes, an hour or more with your patient to really sit down and have some patience to, to work with patients longer than uh, that's what we're used to in that five, 10, 30 minutes that we would have them before we pass them off to the hospital. Um, so obviously somebody that can, be self-sufficient and, and take care of the tasks that are given to them when they know, you know, they're willing to be a problem solver and, you know, help out the patient as much as possible. You know, that they got good judgment, what, what is right for the patient. Oh, we lovely love to have as much, get that education. I think, you know, I, a lot of the other things I think is going to have to continue to change with paramedicine is, you know, stop being in a certification and, and move on to these where it is a licensure and it is coming out to be a two-year to year, two-year degree program. Um, I definitely think that needs to, we need to move that way. And I think that is makes great CPs also is that they're, they have the education and they're willing to learn and willing to understand more than just that, uh, that acute thing that we would normally deal with. And so I think that makes a good candidate to be well-rounded in kind of all those fields. I know it's not always possible, but that's my opinion. Sure. No, I, I can't disagree with any of that. We're really looking for that well-rounded person who um, has pursued educational opportunities and opportunities in both healthcare and social services outside of uh, traditional pre-hospital care in the 911 realm. You know, and your background, I mean, you, you've kind of done a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I think we first, where did we first meet? Was it SOMA? Yes, SOMA on the tactical side of things. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it kind of cracks me up how many uh former flight medics and how many former uh, folks from that community, the, the tactical and operational medicine world have found a, a niche in community paramedicine somewhere. And I think it's just because you end up thinking so much further outside of the, the constraints of 911 when you're working in those realms and you see those opportunities. And I think those, you know, and that, you know, especially when you take that tactical side or that flight side where, you know, we're used to kind of have to look at big pictures and those things. If you're, 
and that tactical side, you're, you know, you're not just worried about uh, the acute injury. It's we're the safety officer. We're looking at making sure our, our team's hydrated and, you know, they're looking, trying to learn sports injuries and, and looking at the, those very things. And in flight medicine, where you're looking at a lot of long-term care of, uh, you know, vent stuff, because you're going to have that patient maybe for hours, a couple hours while you're in your flight and different medications that you won't learn and some more anatomy and physiology things and all those things that kind of come with flight. So you're looking at a different picture. And I think that's my opinion, again, where I think that kind of draws a lot of people to community paramedicine from those fields, because we try to be, we are big picture people. We try to, again, not just focus on that acute, I can only take care of this acute need. I, I want to look at the bigger picture of my patient and what care I can give them. No, it's true. The even more interesting part, though, is I've noticed that even though many of us come from, you know, they said the flight and the tactical operational medicine background, I've yet to see anybody decide that that is a requirement to do this work. I think it, it, at least for me, it just it opened me up to the idea that there's a lot more to what we're doing than just 911 experience. But I don't think you have to have kicked a bunch of doors to uh, be good at this. I agree. I think that, you know, um, you can be good at this, you know, if, if you're willing to, I think the willingness to learn and the willingness to, to, to just have patience because we, we are there for a little bit longer and we are going to have these patients for however your program may last 30, 60, 90 days or however long you may have number of visits. And you're going to be dealing sometimes with those, you know, those physician's offices that aren't quite clear with what we do, or if you're not in a particular healthcare system that somebody knows uh, about what we are in, in trying to educate them also. So they're willing to help you out and why you're there to try to make sure that their patient doesn't go back to the hospital. So, you know, I think if you got those, those pieces, I think that also really helps because you know, paramedics, we're, we're so used to just being there for the, the worst times and just that acute need and that acute injury. And, and that's what we're there for. And then we're out. We moved on to the next call. Oh, for sure. So as I try to hit everybody up for, give me a good community paramedic story. Tell me about a good patient. Could be interesting, could be funny, could be bizarre, but you know, that's one of the best parts about our connection to our EMS and pre-hospital care roots is this isn't a clinic job. This isn't a hospital job. So tell me a good story. I think, you know, when I first started, we've gotten a young girl who was, uh, she was 19, 19 or, um, but diabetic had, had multiple, you know, uh, admissions and DKA and really had no, no good management of her diabetes, got a referral for, to start working with her. And, you know, at that point in time, she, not really had a job, wasn't really able to go to school, you know, just kind of this revolving door between the hospital and, and dealing with her diabetes. And having that time frame that we were able to work with her, you know, got her hooked up with primary care, um, obviously with our resources through our gateway here and the 211 system through the crisis center and, and working with the, the, the hospital system that we work with and to get her into there. And once we got her through the program and she's spending time in our program, we found out she's back in school. She'd gotten a job um, and, you know, really was able to manage those. And that diabetes and that issues with going back to the hospital did not define her life all the time. You know, she, she definitely could start, you know, that part of her life where now I'm an adult. Now I can you know, start doing some of those things and enjoying it versus worrying about going back 
because now she's got management of that. She's got to, she, she really felt that the, you know, that we were there, you know, we were, you know, that once a week or if not more times that we visited or whether that she was in the program really helped her out and was able to move her along and, and not just have that define her life all the time, which is a huge thing. I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, those are social determinants of health, helping people figure out how to overcome those obstacles and barriers in their real life so that they can focus on the things that are important to them. And strangely enough, that turns into improved clinical outcomes, better engagement and better utilization, more efficient or appropriate you know, utilization of the healthcare system. Um, these are people who are better able to take care of themselves and they're healthier and they have fewer complications. Most definitely. And then they're able to have a, a regular life. I mean, sometimes just that whole thing of helping her getting the proper care and, and making sure that she did knew how to take her insulin better and you know, properly and that we got her to the right, edu- you know, the right people, the diabetic educators through her, the primary care she ended up with. I mean, just, just to have a normal life that say, oh, well, I'm, I'm always dealing with this particular problem. So I'm, I'm able, never able to go at that point in time, pre-COVID, you know, travel or go do, you know, what that somebody, you know, at that age wants to do. And she was able to start finally doing it. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. You know, that's the kind of stories that I think need to be shared more often and, and outside of just CP. Like we know that that's often the big impact and sometimes it's hard to quantify. Definitely. Most definitely. Good stuff, man. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to just kind of chat about this stuff today. And, you know, any other any other key points you want to pass on to other folks that are either growing or starting a CP program? I think that, you know, for people growing and, and starting a CP program, just realize it's it's not a flip of a light switch, uh, you know, and, and things instantly turn on. And, uh, you know, kind of like as we were discussing before, you know, people want to, they want to see that data. Data is, is huge. And I think that's definitely driving this is they want to see, you know, the, the, the data with the outcomes and, uh, you know, understand that it's going to take a little bit of time, but uh, try to keep trudging through it. And uh, that the people who are in the field are, which is great, mostly always wanted, willing to talk, get in touch with you. Hey, Jonah, you know, I have an issue here. You know, can you give me some guidance? And I think that's always the great thing that um, will help uh, move programs along. Yeah. You know, reach out, talk to folks doing the work, because I can almost guarantee that something you're having trouble with or something you're trying to struggle to figure out a solution for, somebody else has already tried to navigate and that was really the point of starting this podcast is just getting getting the chance to talk to programs all over the country and hearing about what they're doing and hearing about, you know, how they're being successful and where they, they could use some help and guidance. Yeah. And that, that definitely helps us when, you know, there maybe somebody has gone through that, that Rocky road that might help us maybe guide around it and, and give us uh, a little bit of make, make it easier. Give us a little bit of uh, room to to grow because they dealt with it and they're more than happy to tell us hey we did we we had done this pathway maybe it would have been a little bit easier so or do this and it'll make it a little bit easier for you Um, but also it's great to just see how everybody's doing it around the country and see how programs are developing around the country and you know even up to other countries like canada as as it gets bigger up there also for sure definitely lessons learned to you know to be benefited from by all of us so Anyway, John, I really appreciate you hopping on today. And always appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much. No, thank you. And that's it, folks. Integrated Community Paramedicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.